destiny messages in this series, um, I would encourage you to, uh, to go back and, and to kind of keep up, especially um, because some of these messages are going to be kind of in two parts. So um, we're uh, looking at the second part of Abraham's story today. We're going to be looking at a couple weeks of uh, Jacob coming up. So if you missed the first part of the series, um, you might be a little bit um, lost, but we'll do our best to kind of catch you up to speed. So Last week, when we started in Genesis chapter 12, three strangers showed up outside of Abraham's tent. And we talked about that in that time, 4,000 plus years ago, people didn't just travel around. If you were traveling um, on the road, it was assumed that there was something going on in your life, something dire was happening. You were trying to escape um, war or persecution or your land was in famine, and so you were trying to travel somewhere else to get food. And so if you were a travel on the road, it was assumed you were in need. And so in Abraham's culture then, there were very kind of strict um, cultural expectations about providing hospitality to refugees and exiles and, and strangers on the road. And so last week we looked at Abraham and how he went above and beyond the call of uh, providing hospitality to the strangers. Actually, he kind of like lavished um, the best of his provisions on them, paid them incredible uh, respect. If you remember, he bowed down before them, called them Lord, um, you know, watched them eat um, and served them. And one of those strangers we later learned in the story was actually God in disguise. And uh, God was actually kind of bursting onto the scene here with Abraham to see how he would respond uh, to someone in need. And, and his actions kind of proved to God that this guy was... Um, qualified and, and could be trusted with more responsibility. So as the strangers finished up their meal, this interesting conversation begins to ensue. And so we kind of get a glimpse into God's conversation with the other two visitors um, that we find out later are angels. Um, and God in this conversation is actually trying to decide how much he should tell Abraham about what he's going to do, what he's about to do. And he's trying really to discern, is Abraham's faith strong enough to handle what it is that I'm about ready to do this justice that I'm going to get ready to kind of unload? <laughs> you see, Abraham's nephew, Lot, is down in a town called Sodom. And God is planning on um, potentially destroying that town. So let's go ahead and take a look at Genesis 18 today. It's page 14 in your pew Bibles. It says in verse 17 of chapter 18, it says, Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So, those of you who are parents can relate to God's line of thinking here because as parents, we constantly have to discern based on the age of our kids, maturity level, all those things, what it is they can handle in terms of information. Whether that's usually, especially if it's kind of, um, you know, surrounding some kind of the harsher realities of life. So if there's health concerns with a parent or a grandparent, 
or maybe the child's even own health condition, we have to decide as parents, you know, how much can we tell them that they can kind of handle at whatever age they're at? Or maybe it's financial struggles that are going on at home or um, career changes that you're considering making um, or even relational, you know, conflict between mom and dad. So we often ask the question those times, how much will this news rock their faith? Can they handle hearing about this struggle? And what will this news make them think about God and about his role in our circumstances, whatever those might be at the time? So let's uh, continue to go here on verse 20. It says, then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. So God reveals that he's very concerned about this grievous sin, he says, that's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, and we'll learn a little bit more about that later on. But he says he wants to go down and kind of check it out to see if it's really true and, and then potentially wipe the city out. So this is a very different side of God that Abraham is all of a sudden exposed to, right? So far in kind of their interaction, um, the major scenes that we've had is God, you know, talking to Abraham and, and yes, challenging him to, to pack up and move his family to a new place. Okay, so that was a pretty, pretty significant request. And then we see this interaction where God shows up as a stranger, um, Abraham provides some hospitality to him, um, and then on the wake of that generosity, last week we saw God promising Abraham and Sarah, who were old and hadn't had any children, that, hey, you're going to have a son within a year's time. And so all those interactions so far are kind of fine and good, and nothing really makes you kind of squirm or kind of question uh, God's uh, character so far, okay? But now God is coming to judge, and that feels like a different matter altogether, and part of the deal is that, <clears throat> for us, is that God sees um, the motives, the thoughts, the heart of every person that he's created at a level at which we'll never see. And so he is doing things and making decisions about people's lives that we may not ever understand because he sees so much deeper than we do. And so sometimes we're challenged <laughs> to trust his judgment regarding his creation. Okay, And I think we can all relate to Abraham in that moment because it's one thing for us to realize that you know, we're sinners and that we need God to be a savior in our life and we love that part of the Father and his love and his care for us, but it's a completely different matter to consider God's judgment on the world around us. And then to consider, as we look at things from our perspective, why does God sometimes strike people down like pretty immediately once something evil is happening, um, while others he allows to continue to perpetuate evil and seemingly kind of withholds his hands of judgment for whatever reason, maybe a time for them to come to their senses and repent or whatever it might be. There doesn't seem to always be a pattern to why God intervenes in some situations with some people and in others he doesn't. So those are hard questions to wrestle with at times. And the story gets even stranger as we go into verse 23. It says, Then Abraham approached him, God, and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 
righteous people in the city. Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, exclamation point, right? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now, now that I've been so bold as to ask to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if that number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, well, maybe the Lord be, uh, not, not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it even if I only find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. So Abraham seems to be kind of in this bartering conversation with God. But I think there's something much deeper going on in this interaction. If you look back in verse 20, it says that there's been an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. So we have to ask the question, an outcry from whom? <laughs> Who was crying out? And I would assume that it was from the victims of those that had been violated and oppressed by the sexual misdeeds of the men in that community. And we're going to find out more about that story here in a bit. But God is using this moment again to teach Abraham the importance of responding and caring for the cries of the vulnerable and the oppressed. I want to share with you a quote from the, the book that we've been using as kind of a guide um, for this series called God is Stranger as well. The author says this, this is surely relevant to our world today. When we see terrible things on our news feeds, we can feel desperate. Not only is there little we can do, but when we pray to the one who can intervene, he often seems to be silent and inactive. The story tells us that God hears not only our prayers, but also the outcry from those who have been violated. We can also take comfort that when we cry out in our own suffering to God, he does hear us, despite appearances to the contrary as his time scale is so often different from ours. But we must also take note from this that walking in God's ways must include being attentive to the cry of the poor and the marginalized just as he is. There is a strange and very real tension in this story. God hears the outcry from the oppressed and answers, but God is going to cause an outcry as he visits judgment on the city. So the fact that God allows Abraham in on what he's about to do opens up this opportunity for Abraham to participate, okay? Abraham could have heard what God was going to do and then just kind of stood idly by and done nothing. But as we've learned about his personality, that's really not his, his MO, right? He's the guy that when God, who we barely knew and had a conversation with, says, I want you to pick up your family and move to this completely new place, he did it. He obeyed. He went. Right? When God showed up uh, as a stranger, he provided this unbelievable hospitality for God. 
And we're not surprised now that he's the guy who boldly questions God's intentions for the sake of any righteous people living in those cities. And it certainly makes me think, is God watching us too? As we're exposed to injustices around the world, however we get our news, whether that's on TV or on Twitter, and we see the scenes of starvation, oppression, genocide, uh, you know, we see the, the treatment of these brutal political regimes that are in place like Venezuela, or we hear statistics on sex trafficking. If you didn't know, Kansas City's number two in the country for sex trafficking. Infanticide, human slavery, or the need for foster and adoptive parents, which we talk a lot about here for kids that are being abused or neglected. Is God exposing us to systemic injustice to test our faith? To see if we truly care for the things that he cares about? To see if we'll engage in prayer, in action, with our hearts, with our minds, with our hands and feet, our money, to bring hope and healing and justice to the oppressed? Or will we simply be numb and indifferent to it all, self-absorbed, as many of us are? Why does God seem to tarry in bringing about justice in this world? A God who has the power, the ability to end things completely, uh, to immediately kill every source of evil, why doesn't he do it? Could it be that he's waiting for his children to respond, you and me? As we've talked about before, right, we've talked about there's plenty of money in the world to feed every person here. There's plenty of water to, to give water to everyone. There's plenty of money to inoculate everyone for every disease, but it's a matter sometimes of God's people stepping in and providing the resources and fighting for justice for people. Again, we learn a lot about Abraham's character and how he intercedes, right? Because he's got a nephew in Sodom at the time this conversation is going on. If you guys remember in Genesis chapter 12 last week, when Abraham and Sarah left to go to Canaan, they took Lot with them, their nephew. So he's really kind of been like a son to them. They don't have any children, remember. So it's like your son is down there in this town that God's getting ready to wipe out. But in this, this uh, prayer of intercession that we just read, where, where Abraham is kind of bartering with God, did he mention Lot's name once? He didn't say, hey, um, when you go down there, before you wipe that town out, could you get my nephew Lot and his family out, kind of do me a solid, take care of them? You see, Abraham is concerned for any righteous people in the town showing his love um, for his neighbor, regardless of whatever self-interest he might have in the situation. And that's a challenging example of character, isn't it? And starting in verse 23, did you notice how Abraham is challenging God's stated character? Let me just read verse 25 again. In 25, he says to God, far be it from you to, to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham is looking to God. He's talking to God and saying, hey, don't you know who you are? I need you to act in a way that seems right to me. 
I need you to act in a way that seems consistent with who I think you should be. And we land in that place often, don't we? Some of you guys know um, I have two kids, two of my kids, that have um, celiac disease. So um, if you're not really familiar with that, your, your body, if you have celiacs, reacts to gluten. It treats gluten as like a foreign invader to your body and, and fights against it. And so there's all of these antibody levels that get real aggravated when this gluten. And it, it just kind of is a condition or disease that kind of comes on you. Like literally, like one day you're feeling no effects from it hardly, and then the next day all of a sudden you are. Um, so it kind of sits in your body dormant for a while and then all of a sudden just appears. And so for both of my kids, um, they were in high school and they were both running competitively when we kind of found out that this is what they had. Um, so while your stomach is irritated from the gluten, um, your body, your stomach's not absorbing the nutrients. And so if you're a distance runner in particular, this is a pretty serious condition because you're not absorbing iron and some key things, vitamin D, that you need um, in order to perform at a high level. So both of my kids in high school were having really um, good seasons when this kind of came upon them. Both of them really had a chance to be all state. My son, um, it was his senior year. He'd worked really hard, started off the season. Um, first meet, breaks the school record, beats the kid that eventually wins state that year. And for the next few races, continues to perform kind of as a top 10 to 15 runner in the state of Missouri. And then about halfway through the season, his his time just kind of slowly started dropping. He started complaining of just, I can't breathe as well, I'm tired, um, don't have the energy, and <clears throat> we didn't really know. He was our first one, you know, dealing with this. We didn't know what was going on, so I just thought he was a pansy, basically. No, I'm just kidding. Um, he's not here, so I can joke about that. Um, no, there's a little piece of me that was like, come on, dude. Um, so anyways, you know, we didn't, we didn't get to his test done until after the season. We did get his iron level checked. It was super low. And so his season just kind of just kept petering out. He barely qualified for state, which is really kind of miraculous. Um, and then, you know, didn't finish that well at the end. So Kenzie comes along. Um, for her, it's her sophomore season. We had just gone to Arkansas. She just ran her best time ever, 1925, which for a girl is pretty fast. And we're going to the conference meet the next week. And all of a sudden, at the end of her race, she just kind of starts stumbling and uh, barely gets through the finish line, collapses. You have to take her to the hospital. Uh, we're doing all kinds of tests on her. Um, she goes back and runs districts, falls about 100 meters from the line, crawls on her hands and knees through the finish line um, to finish that race, barely makes it to the next race, which is a state qualifier, where she's completely fine until about 100 meters to go, or actually about 200 meters to go from the finish and she just collapses and can't finish and then doesn't get to go to state at all. And so both of my kids, uh, that disease was kind of a, a year-long or so setback for them, the effects of that on their bodies. Um, and as you can imagine, as a parent, it was really scary and painful to watch um, from a medical standpoint. So, and I say all this, I tell all these stories because you'd better believe that while this was going on, that Kristen and I were praying. Right, And we were asking God, God, man, heal them. Like, we know that you're powerful enough. We know that you're the great healer. We want you to heal their bodies, you know, so they can do the thing that they love, that they put so much time into for your glory, right? I remember crying out, God, God, you're the great healer. Like, show up. Won't this be an awesome testimony to my kids? Like, when you do something amazing and they don't have to deal with this the rest of their lives, right? Take this disease away from them. 
But instead, God didn't answer that prayer. Instead, God answered other prayers. Prayers about shaping their character through adversity and making them both extremely kind and empathic people. Qualities that have taken them much further as followers of Christ than any athletic achievement would have. He healed them in ways that I wasn't asking for. And I got to be honest, I didn't like the way that he was dealing with that in the moment. But in hindsight, I can see the bigger picture now. And I realize that the prayers that he was answering were far more important to who they are as people. And maybe you've been in similar situations with God. Or you've fervently prayed something that you felt like, man, this should be in line with who you are. Why are you not doing it? And God seems to either not be answering or to be answering in a way that you don't want or that you don't really enjoy or see the wisdom behind. And this back and forth between God and Abraham here that we've been looking at is interesting because God doesn't seem to be annoyed with Abraham. I, I was getting annoyed reading the account, right? I get it, 50, 40, we get you know, the pattern here, right? But God's concessions to Abraham seem to be like asking him to or inviting him to ask for more. And so Abraham continues to lean in. Well, if it's 50, what if it's 45, 40, 30, 20, 10? I think God wants us to be more bold in our requests and and to ask for more, to even plead. Remember Abraham's original calling, Genesis 12, 3. God said this about Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples. And so Abraham is leaning into his calling and this, this conversation between him and God because he knows that all people means even those people in Sodom and Gomorrah right now. And so he's praying for the righteous there, strangers to him. He's loving his neighbor as himself. He's thinking, if I was a righteous person in that town, wouldn't I want somebody pleading with God for my life? And there's this tension between trusting God's judgment and calling on his mercy, right? Think about this. If there had been 10 righteous people, a whole city would have been spared because Abraham boldly asked. And this week, as I was writing this, it made me wonder what protection we as followers of Christ can provide the city of St. Joseph, the, the minority blessing the majority. Does God show mercy on this city on our behalf? when we pray for it. God came as a stranger to Abraham. But as God reveals himself and invites Abraham's participation, he becomes more known to him, more familiar, more of a friend. This quote I want to share with you says this. It says, This tension between the God we think we know and love and the God we don't yet know but want to trust is an ongoing one, this side of eternity. To be honest with you guys, I would guess that God has not answered probably at least half the prayers that I've prayed in my life. I'm just throwing out a number, all right? Certainly not, at least in the way that I wanted him to answer them. But the older I get, the more I trust his plans, the more I trust his justice over my ideas of how I want or think things should go. 
And real quickly, I want to tell you guys the rest of that story. So those two angels leave that conversation. They go down into Sodom where they knock on the door of Lot and Lot invites them in uh, and feeds them. And the townspeople, the men in that town, hear that there's some strangers, some refugees coming through town. And so they storm Lot's house and are beating on the door, demanding that they turn the two strangers over them, basically to be gang raped by this crowd. And so luckily, uh, the angels strike these men blind, and Lot and his family is able to sneak out of town. But what was the sin of Sodom? We see a window into their evil from the prophet Ezekiel later on in Scripture. It's Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. It says this, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty, did detestable things before me. Therefore I did away with them as you have seen. So what actions or postures does the Lord despise about the people in Sodom? What are some things you, you noticed on that list? They did not help the poor. Okay, indifference to the poor. What else? This is not difficult. Here we go. They're haughty, like prideful, arrogant. Yeah. Yeah, they had more than they needed. They were overfed. Greedy. Greedy. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, they considered themselves better than these refugees, so they could do with them what they wanted, right? Or ignore them if they wanted. Okay? Good. All right? <laughs> well, not good, but that good answers, right? So there's this self-centeredness, this gluttony, this apathy that's creeping into them, this indifference. And this whole Abraham narrative that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks is, is all couched in this theme of how we treat the stranger. Right? Last week we saw in Hebrews 13 uh, this verse that said basically, you know, provide hospitality to all because sometimes when people have provided hospitality, they've realized they're doing it for angels and they didn't realize it. Today we've seen an example of others who tried to abuse angels without knowing it. But God really tells us, you know, to, to love our enemies and, and provide for them. So, I mean, the, it stretches to every person, not just strangers. Sometimes people, they're very familiar with us. Kandaya, the author here, <clears throat> spent some time in a country called Albania, which is in Europe. And he shared this about just the hospitality ex expectations in that country. He said, I've been reminded while writing this chapter of another aspect of life in Albania. Woven into the fabric of Albanian culture is a commitment to hospitality that was codified in the 15th century into 38 articles known as the Canon of Leek. Among these, it states that the house of the Albanian belongs to God and the guests. This means that if a traveler turns up unexpectedly and asks to be your guest, it is unacceptable to turn him away, even if he is your worst enemy. You cannot refuse him hospitality. Even if your families are engaged in a blood feud, a practice of vengeance that sounds medieval to us but still exists in some parts of the country. During the time that I lived in Albania, it was far and away the poorest country in Europe. 
Yet despite great poverty and trouble, I experienced an overwhelming hospitality and generosity from its people. I went there to help strangers know God better. But as I was welcomed into the home of strangers, they taught me what it meant to trust God in all sorts of hardships and crises. I learned much of value from these strangers. So I want to put a couple questions up here on the screen for us to discuss. What have these last two weeks in this story of Abraham been confronting in you? And what sinful postures or idols are being exposed through these stories? Anybody care to share? Yeah, Chris. Yeah, so Chris is just being confronted with the apathy and indifference that he can have at times about different things. Yeah. What else? Way in the back, Catherine. Okay. Okay. Right. So our definition of American hospitality is maybe inviting people over for dinner, people that we already know and like, <laughs> right? Not what would I do if a stranger showed up at my door and the cultural expectation was even if it was an enemy to provide for them and invite them into my home <laughs> and, and to share a meal with me. And even how we define what hospitality is is challenging because, you know, how many times does, you know, a stranger show up outside in our driveway demanding that we invite him in? Like, that just doesn't happen. So we've got to have a wider scope and understanding of what might hospitality demand, what might that look like for, for us in, in our American culture, okay? Yeah, anybody else? Thank you. Great example. Yeah. Okay, yeah, how do I treat people who I perceive can't do anything back for me, right? When I'm just completely the giver, how do I treat those people? It's great. I, it's great because it's honest, right? I appreciate that. Anybody else? Got time for one more sinner. Yes, Rob, all right. Yeah. 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 He talked about uh, last week when I talked about sometimes when we donate, <laughs> right, we, we give stuff to a middleman who then has the interaction with the person in need so that we don't even have to, to have that potentially awkward interaction who's just different than us, different socioeconomically, different culturally, racially, whatever it might be. 
okay? Guys, I've been, I've been haunted by this verse for several years now. It's a verse we handed out on a card probably eight, nine years ago during Advent. It's Proverbs 21, 13. It says this, whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. I think that God becomes less and less a stranger when we love and care for the poor and vulnerable well. And Abraham showed us how to do that, to provide radically generous hospitality and then to intercede on behalf of the outcry of the vulnerable and the needy. Abraham pleased God because his heart cared for the things that God cares about. And so the question that I want us to wrestle with here <laughs> is just kind of, yeah, are we wrestling with this? Are we wrestling with this? Because remember I, last week I talked about, it. I don't want this just to be informative and interesting. I want us to walk away and, and really wrestle with, well, how am I doing with that? How am I doing at caring for and loving the stranger, the exile? Because how I do that is how I love God. Matthew 25, right? Whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done for me. Whatever you haven't done for the least of these, you haven't done for me. And so we can't both say, I, I love God and, and man, I'm serving him well and whatever, and then ignore the needs of the stranger. Those two can't be compatible. Does that make sense? And so that pushes us into this tension of, again, kind of getting back to the Apostles' Creed. I say I believe this, but my actions don't line up with that, don't prove that. Okay, I can't say, yeah, I love and care for the vulnerable and then not do anything, right? And then that takes many, many forms, right? There's all kinds of ways you can get engaged in caring for vulnerable people. Some of you guys are teachers or educators that have chosen to be in schools that are socioeconomically challenging. You've chosen that because you felt called to that. You care and serve those kids that aren't yours every day, right? Some of you have fostered, adopted. Some of you have you know, worked at the guest house and spent time with, with kids in our neighborhood who are in need. Some of you guys are financially supporting some significant works around the world. And, and then there's others, folks, that just really aren't doing a whole lot. <laughs> And that's okay, because I've been there at some point in my life, but it's kind of like one of those things, like once God makes you aware of something, now you're responsible. So if you don't want to do much, stop coming to Wellspring. That would be my first piece of advice, okay? Stop coming here, because we're going to talk about this kind of stuff that makes you squirm and creep around, right? Because when I read the Bible, that's what happens when I read it. I read it, and I find out that it's this book that I don't really like a lot, because it, it, confronts, it confronts this life that I want to live, which is safe and secure and self-centered. And it pushes me to not be that way. Because there's a desperate world out there that needs the Christians to be doing stuff. To be like God. To have his heart. To be like Christ. Self-sacrificial, loving, giving themselves away. And we constantly are searching for this gospel that doesn't demand as much from us. We want to figure out how to be a Christian and it not hurt much. And there's not a version of Christianity that I found 
that doesn't include self-sacrifice as its kind of primary thing that is constantly pushing on, on you. That's all. <laughs> all right, let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, uh, man, we are challenged again by you and your love and your call for us to care for people that we don't want to care for um, because they're demanding and they're needy and they're